910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Have you ever noticed that people always want to know the future? Most people would like nothing more than to have a magic eight ball to consult whenever they want to know what's in store for them. This is why the books on Revelation or other biblical prophecy that make specific predictions usually become bestsellers. And some of them even assigned exact dates to events that they say are going to take place. That doesn't always work so well. No, and that's very true. A few episodes back, we saw how the imagery in the apocalyptic literature is used to both conceal and reveal. And while the original audience would have understood all the imagery, sometimes we can't define some of the symbols definitively. And we need to be okay with that and just trust God. We saw this in the differing views on the beast in chapter 7. As we head into chapter 9 and chapter 10, the situation is the same. In fact, chapter 9 of the book of Daniel has been called the most difficult and most debated chapter in the entire Old Testament. If the last two episodes on chapter 7 and 8 made your head hurt, well, then you might want to pop a couple of Tylenol right now because we're going to dive in. That's right. So we're going to start by setting up and paraphrasing the beginning of chapter 9. Daniel's writing this in the first year of King Darius's reign. So the events in this chapter happen close to the time of the events in chapter six, when Daniel was thrown into the lines then. Daniel was a contemporary of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It means they were alive and active in their prophecy around the same time. Now, Jeremiah is the earliest of the three, and he predates Daniel and Ezekiel by about 30 years, give or take a few. Jeremiah is the only prophet who prophesied the exact time the southern nation of Judah would be in exile in Babylon, and he does that in Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12. Here's what it says. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. There were three sieges on Judah by Babylon, with the first one being in 605 BC. If you remember, we said that it's most likely the one that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken in. The Medo-Persian Empire killed King Belshazzar and took complete control of Babylon in 538 BC. King Cyrus took control, made Darius the king of Babylon in that area, and began to let the exiles go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. The time from the first siege in 605 to Babylon's total defeat in 538 comes out to 67 years. Dating may be off a year, or it may have taken a couple years for the people to leave and return to Judah, but there's your 70 years. Now, there's some scholars who think 70 years is a symbolic number and not the literal number because it's seven times 10, two numbers that are used to symbolize completeness. But in this case, that's highly unlikely because both Daniel and Ezekiel were aware of Jeremiah's prophecy and they were counting the years literally, as Daniel says in chapter nine, verse two. Daniel would have also been aware of a prophecy made by Isaiah, and it's recorded in Isaiah 44, 26 to 28, and I'll read it. I am the Lord who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of the ruins, I will restore them. 
And then in verse 28, he says, of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. That's the end of the scripture. So given both of these prophecies, Daniel knew the time of exile was just about up. We tell you all this so that you know what was in Daniel's mind and what was going on around him in chapter nine. The 70 years are up and he's in great anguish because he knows most of God's people have not learned the intended lesson from being in exile. Hard head, right? <laughs> Starting at nine, verse three, Daniel says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Chris, we said in one way, Daniel points to Jesus in his role as an intercessor for the people. Now, Daniel certainly isn't sinless like Jesus, but he has remained faithful to God throughout his exile, as we've seen. And he's grieving over the people's sin, their rebellion, and failure to obey and honor God, even though he himself hasn't sinned in this way. He's doing exactly what Moses did in Exodus 32 when he acted as an intercessor between God and the Israelites. He pleaded for mercy for the people after they'd worshiped the golden calf. Remember, Moses wasn't guilty of that sin. He was up on the mountain with God. And it made him sick that the people did it. Just like this makes Daniel sick that the Jewish people in exile still have not repented and continue to sin. Both Moses and Daniel point us to Jesus who's our intercessor with God if we're Christians. Right. Daniel 9 goes on to say, righteousness belongs to God, but open shame belongs to every Jew because of their treachery, as he calls it, committed against Almighty God. In other words, they are wretched sinners, unworthy and unable to stand before their holy God. As he says in chapter 9, verse 13, I'll read it. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. There's Daniel a universal spends, truth for everyone. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. Daniel spends the beginning of chapter nine, pouring out his heart to God, repenting of Israel's sin and begging God for forgiveness, not because they deserve it, but because it is in God's character to be merciful and forgive them. And as the end of the 70 years approaches, Daniel realizes a very disconcerting thing. The 70-year period of judgment has not brought Israel to repentance for their sins against God. Taking a look back historically, Leviticus 26, 14 to 46, tells us of the curses that were promised for disobedience. And these are again echoed in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68. God doesn't take sin lightly. That is a huge presentation we need to give when we give the gospel message. And this is what sets the stage for Daniel's prayer and why his sense of mourning is so great. Yeah, and you're right. We do need it today. We definitely need it today. 
We said that the prophets understood the covenant between God and his people in the Old Testament. Daniel is a prophet. He fully understands the covenantal relationship. He understands the idea of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Daniel is going to go to God in prayer and petition for mercy for his people, even though they are unrepentant and most of them are continuing to sin against God. And he is acting as intercessor. As you said, he's praying on behalf of others. Jesus, the ultimate and perfect intercessor, stood in the gap between us and God while we were all enemies of God and dead in our sins. Like Daniel, Jesus worked on our behalf long before we came to God repentant of our sin. And that's a great parallel. Before interceding, Daniel puts himself in a humble position before God, something Jesus had no need to do. But still, he did it by always turning the glory back to God the Father and submitting to the will of the Father. Daniel fasts, he prays, and he clothes himself in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes were a sign of self-abhorrence and humility before God. They were used when mourning and pleading with God for mercy and help, as he's doing here. We see this in the book of Esther in chapter 4, when the Jewish people were mourning and pleading with God that they not be annihilated. The Jewish people in Esther's time didn't know what their fate would be. They didn't know if God was going to save them or not. In Daniel's time, though, as we saw, God told his people ahead of time that there was hope and that he was going to free them from their exile and they would return home. But still, the people didn't repent of their sin. Yeah, we see a picture of this in Luke 10, verse 13, concerning the cities all bordering the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had done mighty works and miracles, but the people refused to repent. Here, they're told that their doom for their unbelief is made worse because if those same miracles had been done in the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon, the people would have repented. Jesus tells them because they knew about Jesus and saw who he was, but still refused to repent, that their fate will be worse than the unbelievers who didn't have the evidence right there in front of their faces. This is the same kind of thing that Daniel's lamenting in verse 15 when he says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Yeah, but Daniel knows God. He knows him intimately. He knows his character. Despite the wickedness, the hardness, and the sinfulness of the people, Daniel knows God's people always have hope, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And he shows us this in verses 16 to 19, and I'm read them. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. There's a stark contrast between God and his people, and this still applies to us as his people today. God is the almighty sovereign Lord, and we are nothing. God is merciful even to those who rebel against him. We're unfaithful and sinful. God is forgiving, and we are rebellious. God does not change and keep 
keeps all of his promises and we are unfaithful and disobedient. Daniel and others in scripture that intercede remind God that his mercy is for his own name's sake. And that's because when God shows mercy to the undeserving, you know, for example, all of us, it glorifies him. And that's our main purpose on earth, to glorify God. And understand, we don't glorify God by great things we do for him. We glorify God by showing the world the great things he does for us. Right. So continuing in Daniel 9, 21 to 23, it says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So the angel Gabriel shows up and he says he has insight and understanding to show Daniel. But first, God sees the mournful, anguished state that Daniel's in over the sin of his people. And God has a message for Daniel. Before Gabriel lays out what God has planned for his disobedient people, God tells Daniel through Gabriel in verse 23, you are greatly loved. So Imagine being Daniel, faithful and obedient to God, and yet taking the rest of the people sin on yourself and pleading with God to pardon them. God's reminding Daniel that he is dearly loved. Sound familiar? Hmm. Could it be hmm. that Daniel is pointing us again to Jesus here? Remember at the yeah. start of Jesus's mission, a mission he knew fully well would lead to his undeserved horrific torture and death. But he was doing it so God would pardon his people. Jesus gets baptized. And when he comes up from the water, Matthew 3, 17 tells us, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We see it again at the transfiguration in Mark 9, where it says in Mark 9, 7, And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yes, it's true. Both times were to testify to witnesses, Jesus' divinity. But it was also God the Father reminding Jesus, his son, that he sees him and that he's dearly loved, knowing that there were going to be hard times ahead for him. That's a, it's a great correlation to make. So Rose, 23 verses into chapter 9, and for this being the most debated and complex chapter in the Old Testament, it seems pretty straightforward. Don't think anyone could disagree with what is clearly laid out in the first 23 verses. But then when we get to verse 24, things start to change. Verses 24 through 27 are complex verses. They're the ones that we're referring to as complex verses. They say, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both a vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Got so, it? <laughs> Got your Tylenol? Hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> okay. So let's try to unpack this. And don't worry if you didn't catch all of what Chris read, because we're going to requote it as we go through the interpretation. So this passage has been hotly debated, especially with the advent of dispensationalism in the late 1800s. There's been numerous charts, timelines, all created trying to figure out if this timeline is symbolic or literal, what the events it mentions are, and when or if they've already happened. So how this passage has been interpreted has actually divided churches. Some believe these are all future events that are going to occur around the end times, which they define as when Jesus comes back, since we think biblical evidence clearly says we're in the end times now and have been since Jesus' ascension, we obviously don't take this view. Some think these verses are describing events that may have been future to Daniel, but are all past to us. We mostly agree with this, but we fall into the third camp that holds that most of the events have already occurred, but there's still a future aspect to the end of this timeline. The only thing we can promise is that while we can't give any absolute on these verses because nobody is able to, so it would be pretty arrogant to think we can, we'll do our best to explain it as we see it and as we think biblical evidence lends light to it. So hopefully your Tylenol is kicked in because here we go. <laughs> okay. Gabriel tells Daniel 70 weeks are decreed about the Jewish people, the holy city, and the people's transgression, so as to put an end to sin, to atone for that sin, bringing everlasting righteousness, to seal prophecy and prophets, and to anoint a most holy place. You can't read that and not think immediately, this is going to be about Jesus. And it is. We see that from verse 25, when Gabriel tells Daniel, an anointed one is coming. The big debate is on the timeline of the 70 weeks, that Gabriel breaks into seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week, which is further broken up in half. So let's look at this 70 weeks. The NLT and other translations don't use the word weeks, but say 70 sets of seven. And this is made complex and confusing by the use of seven and multiples of seven. This could be a literal time like we just looked at the exile, or it could be a symbolic time. Like we said, 70 years of exile was literal. Seven days of creation was literal. Seven is also used symbolically, though, throughout scripture to mean complete. Even when it's used in the literal, there's still a metaphorical aspect to seven meaning complete. Seven days of creation was complete creation. So 70 weeks, which has seven days each, and 70 sets of seven are the same thing. However, 70 weeks, which the ESV uses, lends itself to be taken literally, while 70 sets of seven, which the NLT uses, lends itself more to being symbolic. Both of these are extremely credible translations. So Chris, which is it? Well, Daniel was speaking in terms of years when he was praying about the end of the exile. 
And this leads most credible scholars to conclude that Gabriel's also speaking in years. 70 weeks or 70 times seven means 490 years. It's the same for translations that use 70 sets of seven. Gabriel was speaking of the time decreed between the end of the exiles of Judah's current punishment and the end of sin. For many, they conclude this is the time from King Cyrus to Jesus. But for this time to be literal, it poses a problem for them. Cyrus took control in 538 BC, and as we've seen, he's the one God used to set the exiles free and allow them to go home and rebuild the temple and their land. Although the dates are not exact, Jesus is estimated to have been born in 4 to 6 BC. He was 32 to 33 when he was crucified, which would have made the year 28 to 30 AD. If you do the math, 538 BC to either 4 or 6 BC or 28 to 30 AD doesn't add up to 490 years. It's like 534 years or 564 years, roughly. So some in the literal camp start the dating later, like in 458 BC or 420 BC, with the time ending in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. The argument is that for those 490 years, although the Jews did return and live in their land again, and even were able to start worshiping at the temple again, they didn't govern themselves. They had someone controlling and oppressing them. First, it was Medo-Persia, then it was Greece, then it was Rome. Their argument for 490 literal years is a good one. In the original prophecy of the curse for Israel about their exile, found in Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 46, God said there would be sevenfold increase in punishment for their continued disobedience. And just to read one verse from that, Leviticus 26 to 21 then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sin. So God first punished Judah by disobedience, by exiling them to Babylon for 70 years. And here he's instituting a sevenfold punishment as promised for their continued disobedience. So 70 years for the first exile, sevenfold, voila, 490 years. But voila, as we saw, <laughs> The math doesn't really add up. In fact, those in the literal camp don't agree and have a hard time finding a starting point for the 490 years. This is why we believe that they're symbolic. And that's a hard stance to take considering Luther and Calvin took them to be literal. But we have to take this into consideration. The book of Daniel directly correlates with the book of Revelation, as we've seen over and over. Luther thought Revelation was worthless and should be eliminated from the Bible, and while Kevin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible, he omitted 2nd and 3rd John, which talk about the Antichrist and other Revelation things, and the book of Revelation itself. So we have to conclude that Luther and Calvin, although absolutely brilliant and should be looked to for almost all things scriptural, and we do look to them a lot, had an issue with Revelation. And given this, it would make sense that they assign the literal to Daniel instead of seeing it as a springboard for revelation. And in their defense, it could very well be they avoided it because of the Catholic mysticism that was so rampant in their time. They might not have wanted to do anything that might feed into that. But whatever the case, many other brilliant theologians like Spurgeon did take on revelation and symbolic future prophecy. And we tell you this to show 
that if these giants in the faith couldn't get this perfect, don't expect us to even come close. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. But, you know, here's why we and others think that the 77s are symbolic of a time when God's plan would be complete and not a literal 490 years. 77s would be the ultimate completeness. We see the same thing in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, when Peter asked Jesus how many times he has to forgive his brother. Seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you 70 times, but 77 times. Jesus didn't literally mean 77 times. 77 is two sevens. And since seven means complete, 77 means complete, complete. In other words, forgive someone every time. Right. Okay, so let's start by putting these verses into context. Daniel was praying to God for mercy for the Israelites whose exile in Babylon was coming to an end, and he was anguishing over the fact that they still had not repented of their sin. Verses 20 to 27 are God's answer to that prayer through Gabriel. Gabriel's referencing the Jewish people in Jerusalem and what he said. A day was coming when God would act to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring an everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. So that wouldn't be so complex if we could say that the 490 years refers to the complete period of the rest of the old covenant, the advent of Jesus, his defeat over Satan, sin, and death, and even to his second coming when he brings that to complete fruition. But Gabriel muddies the water by splitting these seven weeks into seven weeks, 62 weeks, a half a week, and another half a week. How about a quarter of a week? No, (laughs) he doesn't do that. Uh, There's disagreement about if the original Hebrew meant to separate the first seven weeks and 62 weeks, and that the way it was written, it was meant to mean 69 weeks, not separated. We'll look at three trusted translations all who translated from the original Hebrew. First, our usual go-to, the ESV. Verse 25 of the ESV says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. Then there's the NSAB said, so you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with streets and moats, even in times of distress. And then the NLT says, now listen and understand seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. So all three separate the seven and 62, but also link them together. Whereas, as we will see in verses 26 and 27, the last seven period is clearly and distinctly separate. So what does all this mean? Well, we don't know. (laughs) But here's what one commentator says. The history of the interpretation of this verse is confirmation of the fact that this prophecy is difficult and requires spiritual discernment. He correlates it to Revelation 17, 9, where John says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. 
So instead of confusing the heck out of you and throwing a bunch of different theories at you, we will tell you what we don't know and what we do know. What we don't know is if there is a definite separation between the first sets of time and the next 62. The Hebrew text just is not clear. Sometimes it does separate time periods that are the same. For example, we just saw in chapter eight where time times and a half time was one symbolic number for three and a half. So that would be the case here. And since it's been done in this particular book before, it makes that case seem stronger. So if we go with the seven sets and 62 sets are length and symbolic of one set of 69, that makes the interpretation a little easier. This is the time between when the exiles were released until the advent of Jesus. And during that time, the people would return to Jerusalem. They'd rebuild the temple, looking forward to the coming Messiah. The temple would be rebuilt, but there would still be troubled times, as the text said. We saw just how troubled the times were going to be when we talked about Greece and Rome in chapter 7 and then in 8. So then we get to verses 26 and 27, and here we see the divide between the first 69 weeks, or allotment of time, and the last week. This last seven is set apart. Verse 26 says, and we will read from the NLT because the language is a little bit clearer. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and war, and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. So the beginning of verse 26 says the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. This is referring to Jesus's crucifixion, but it's a lot more. Remember, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah to save them from Roman oppression. Jesus's death and resurrection didn't do that. Hence, he appeared to accomplish nothing. And we know this is what it means by the rest of that verse where it says, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Well, this is talking about Titus destroying a temple in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, about 37 years after Jesus's resurrection. And this is exactly what Jesus himself told his apostles would happen in his Olivet Discourse. I'll abridge Matthew 24, 6 to 22, where Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumor of wars. Nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes. All these are the beginning of birth pains. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And this is one of those already not yet passages. Jesus is foretelling the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. But he's also pointing to the events that will take place between the time of his ascension and his second coming, meaning the end times, meaning the time of tribulation, meaning now. He even references back to this Daniel passage. And what Jesus says parallels the rest of Daniel 9.26, which says, the end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Okay, one more verse to go. And this one is not as complex as the others. Verse 27 says, the ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. 
But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his horrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Verses 26 and 27 are parallel. Jesus is cut off, meaning crucified in verse 26, and makes a covenant in verse 27. Jesus institutes the new covenant during the first half of the final week. This is referring to Jesus's first coming. He ushers in the kingdom of God as king. This is the start of the new covenant. No more animal sacrifices or meager offerings will be made by the people to try and get right with God. By Jesus being cut off, he takes the wrath of God on himself for his people. Our sins are permanently atoned for. And the temple destruction, the end time tribulation, all happen during this first half of the final week. Like you said, Chris, it's Jesus's first coming and goes up until his second coming. The second half of the final week, though, is Jesus's second coming. This is when he, meaning Satan and the Antichrist and all the Antichrists and all the wicked, will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. However, they will only do it until, as the text says, the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. This is a picture of Jesus's second coming, his judgment on the world, condemnation of the wicked, and his bringing to culmination his already won victory on Satan, sin, and death. Okay. So that was a lot. So what are the takeaways from this very complex passage in Daniel? First, again, we see the recurring theme of the sovereignty of God in this passage. God, through Gabriel, is showing Daniel that, yes, things are hard, and guess what? They're going to get worse, but God's got it. He's got a plan, and nothing, absolutely nothing happens throughout history outside of his plan. Two, regardless of the state of the temple, whether it was destroyed, rebuilt, or destroyed again, God was with his people. Even when he was punishing them, he was with them. For those who belong to Jesus, whatever our state is, whether we are passionately following Jesus, hungrily devouring God's word, or feel guilty and overwhelmed by our sin, or if we're in a dry spell where we aren't feeling like cooperating with our sanctification, regardless of where we are, we can know for sure where God is. He's with us. Amen to that. And one more thing, Daniel and his original audience would have understood that they weren't getting complete restoration, but instead 70 more weeks of punishment because they were impenitent. Now understand, this is from a human standpoint. Obviously, God always knew this was going to happen, but they should have learned and we should learn by reading it that God's blessings in our lives might be delayed if we continue in sin without turning to him. And again, this is from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. What are we missing out on if we continue to wallow in our sin instead of surrendering our entire life over to God? Good question to ponder. And it's a good question to end on. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Don't forget to check out our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com for resources, posts, and news. Have a blessed day, everybody. 